Welcome to another episode of EdChoice Chats. I'm Jason Bedrick, the Director of Policy here at EdChoice, and I'm joined today with our President and CEO, Robert Enlow. Hi, Jason. How are you? Great. How are you? Very well. Good. So I'm excited. We're doing another installment of our uh, School Choice and Pop Culture series. Today, we are going to be covering Yes, Prime Minister, which is sort of the sequel to uh, Yes, Minister, which is a very popular uh, series that ran uh, on the BBC in Britain uh, during the 1980s. Uh, you spent some time in England. Was this one of your shows that you watched? I would watch this on BBC Two uh, when I lived there. I was lucky enough to live there for seven years with my uh, with my family. I, I did some time at Oxford and did was a social worker in London. And so, yes, this was one of those Sunday afternoon nothing's on TV after the footy, uh, as they say, the soccer. Uh, and you'd watch this, and uh, it was uh, nothing like British sarcasm and British humor and British poking fun at themselves. And this is the quintessential. Uh, series to do that. Right. So it is a, it's a satire about uh, politics and government. Uh, it's, it's sort of like the British version of West Wing, except more true to life. More true to life and certainly more funny. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, and Margaret Thatcher's favorite uh, TV show, I, I, according to Wikipedia. That's certainly I, funnier, if we're going to use proper grammar, oh, by well, the way. there you go. Certainly funnier. Uh, so uh, let's, for many of our listeners, given that we are in the United States, are, are probably not familiar with the program. So uh, just to set it up, uh, we're going to be looking at an episode called The National Education Service, which aired in 1988. Uh, there are three main characters. Uh, one is originally a minister, and then he was elevated to prime minister, and that's Jim Hacker. Uh, and uh, his... Just his name uh, is his funny, name, right? Yes. His name is a hack, right? Yes. He's Hacker, yes. right? Uh, and uh, then his... Um, is one of his permanent secretaries uh, and, uh, in, in some sense, chief antagonist... Uh, frenemy, if you will, uh, is Sir Humphrey Appleby. And so he's the man who is, he's dedicated to preserving the status quo. Uh, he is the consummate civil servant. Uh, he, he loves the civil service and wants it to be exactly as it is and, and not, uh, not have any reform whatsoever. Uh, and, and usually he's, he's very famous in these episodes for at some point having some long speech uh, that. Uh, dazzles and confuses the people that, that he's trying to manipulate. Uh, then there's uh, Bernard Woolley, who is the uh, principal private secretary to the prime minister. And in this episode, uh, there are two of, um, not the main characters, but, but uh, recurring characters. So there's the prime minister's wife, who we'll be seeing uh, in a moment in the first clip, and then also uh, Dorothy Wainwright, uh, who is his chief political advisor. Uh, now, in this scene, uh, the, the prime minister has just done, uh, its elections are coming up, so he's doing a tour. He's trying to visit, visit the uh, so-called marginal constituencies, and he does a tour of a private school and gets some um, uh, media attention for that, and he's very happy about how it went. Uh, but his wife was very impressed with the private school that he toured. It, it had a program, you know, a woodworking program and some interesting things that were helping uh, low-income families. And so uh, she would really like to see more kids have access to a private school. So now let's make it more confusing because what you call a private school in America is really a public school in Britain. Yeah. So we can make it more confusing. No, it's a state run versus public, which public would be the private. So, yes, they went and saw a public class slash private school. Um, and uh, it's, it's a funny story. Basically, when he goes there, he ends with a great joke, which I'm sure we're going to see here shortly. That's right. I'm not interested in your paranoia. I was interested in that school. Yes, parents queuing up to get their children into it. What a pity they can't all get in. More coffee. Oh, mm, no, no, no. Why 
can't more parents send their children there? No room. There is room, actually. School numbers are falling. Yeah, but that'd mean poaching in the other schools. So what's wrong with that? Well, the other schools wouldn't have enough pupils. They'd have to close. Great! So St Margaret's could take over their buildings. Oh, no, you couldn't do that. It wouldn't be fair. Who to? The teachers in the schools that had to close. But the good teachers would be taken on by the popular schools. They'd be needed. What about the bad teachers? It wouldn't be fair on them. <laughs> what about being fair on the children? Or are the bad teachers' jobs more important? I mean, it, it, it's no good. No. Who's to say who are the bad teachers? It just wouldn't work. Why not? Well, it wouldn't work. It's what, what I see in this clip, and, and you tell me what you see, what I see is the, the prime minister sort of representing status quo bias. Okay, this is the system that elected him. This is the system that he's used to dealing with. When he hears an idea for reforming the system, his, his instinct is, well, I've got to protect these various constituencies because any change is just going to upset the apple cart. We can't have that. So his initial knee-jerk instinct is, no, we can't have reform. But his wife is looking at it from the point of view of a parent taking care of a child. And she says, well, that's a good school. Why shouldn't all kids have access to that school? So it's this, it's this unique uh, interaction between someone who asks innocent questions. Well, why can't they? And why can't St. Margaret's take over that building? And why don't parents have that chance? And versus the gut reaction, well, oh, that wouldn't be fair. Like There might be someone who gets hurt, right? And so it's this natural... Uh, uh, fight in my, in many ways between sort of what's best for one versus what some people think is best for all, right? It's a classic syst- uh, situational uh, system conversation. W- what I thought was really interesting is is the political person in there also threw in a bunch of like, well, no, the numbers are going down, right? The facts, you know, facts are in evidence that it might work. Well, at the end of the day, all he could come back to was, well, it just wouldn't work, right? Right? Um, and there are too many constituencies lined up against parents. Um, but what I think that shows is is the the fact that the arguments against uh, the simple question of why can't parents choose are ultimately bereft. Ultimately, there's no power to them. Right. And uh, at a certain point, the prime minister himself recognizes, oh, I could do that. Uh, and so we'll see in the next scene. Now the prime minister uh, is going to pitch this idea to this, uh, you know, his chief bureaucrat, uh, Sir Humphrey Appleby. Uh, and his, he's brought, again, his uh, political advisor, Dorothy Wainwright, along. She said she wanted to be there. He asked why. So you could see the clash of the political will and the administrative will. And she says, oh, I think it'll be uh, more the clash of the political will versus the administrative won't. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And I love, what I love about this, this sort of arc of this conversation is it goes from him realizing, oh, I could do this, to him learning that he can't do it because of the status quo. Right. So let's see the clip. Oh, Humphrey, come in. Sit down. I just want to bounce an idea off you. Mm-hmm. I've realized how to reform the educational system. Excellent, Prime Minister. <laughs> I'm going to let parents take their children away from school and move them to any school they want. Well, you mean after application, scrutiny, tribunal hearing and appeals procedures? No, Humphrey, just move them whenever they want to. I'm sorry, I don't quite follow. This government is going to let parents decide which schools to send their children to. Prime Minister, you can't be serious. (laughs) All right, so here's the classic technocratic mindset that uh, Sir Humphrey represents, which is we experts need to be in charge. We we can't let other people just do whatever they're going to do. If they're going to make choices on their own, they might choose 
wrong. And so the only way we can let them out of the system is if we establish these tribunals and appeals procedures and all these various hoops that you need to jump through in order to escape the system. So what I think is even more casual than that, right? So let's not even presume it's like the technocratic saying, I know better. It's just the way systems and governments work, right? So he, he hears this idea and he gives this condescending clap, which, by the way, is hysterical, um, and then says, well, hold on. The, the way the government works is applications, tribunals, the way we have, to, we have to have the machinery of government work because that's the only way that it can work fairly for all families is the way they think about it, right? So I, I don't necessarily think it's merely someone saying parents don't have the ability to. It's just, well, government has to work a certain way. And it was very interesting, uh, Weinwright's question is why? Why can't we do it that way? Why can't we allow parents to be free? Well, he, and I think he said, was it that's preposterous, right? Um, and, and I think that's a, a great statement to, to show the, the difference between what a system of government does and what a system of choice does. It's preposterous to think that individuals can be free to choose. Right. And so now we're going to see he actually uh, does go in and, and a- attack this whole idea that parents should just have the freedom to choose that's on their correct. own. Why? Well, you can't expect parents to make these choices. I mean, how on earth would parents know which schools are best? <laughs> which school did you go to, Humphrey? Winchester. Is it good? Oh, excellent, of course. Who chose it? My parents, naturally. <laughs> now, that's different, Prime Minister. My parents were discerning people. You can't expect ordinary people to know where to send their children. Why not? Well, how could they tell? Well, they could tell if their kids could read, write, and do sums. They could tell if their neighbors were happy with the school, and they could tell if the exam results were good. Exam results aren't everything, Prime Minister. That's true. And those parents who don't want an academic education for their children can choose progressive schools. But parents have no qualifications to make these choices. I mean, teachers are the professionals. Parents are the worst people to bring up children. <laughs> they have no qualifications, no training. You don't expect untrained teachers to teach. The same should apply to parents. So, I mean, this is an argument that, sadly, we, we hear far too often. And you hear it, shockingly, out of the mouths of many politicians who are really talking about their own constituents, saying, uh, you know, oh, they can't choose. I mean, certainly I can choose. I mean, you can go to Washington, D.C., and you see all of these people in Congress who are sending their kids to local private schools, not to the district schools, uh, and then voting against giving those other children choice. So, you know, I can make good choices. You know, Sir, uh, Sir Humphrey's parents, they certainly knew how to make a good choice. But, but those parents over there, they can't choose. And his parents were discerning. Yes. Right? And, and what was good for me was not good for thee. I, I think that's very interesting. I also thought it was really interesting when you look back and he, he looks wistfully and thinks back to his time when his parent, with the school he went to in happiness. And, and part of it's because his parents chose. And all of a sudden he realized, oh, what if that were avail- available to everyone? And somehow he starts pulling back, well, not everyone can do that. Parents don't have this capability to choose. And, and I think as you keep going down that clip, you realize the gratuitous insult that is to families, right? And I think that that's important for us to remember in this, in this, this movement. So anyone who says a parent can't be free to choose ultimately is someone who probably has a choice, right? And, and I think it, the, the hypocrisy of Humphrey in that, that conversation is, is mind-boggling to me. I, I, that's one of the ones that really struck me because she's like, well, parents can, Wainwright again says, 
my parents can do all sorts of different things and have all sorts of different freedoms. And he's like, oh, no, you can't do that. You know, there's also this um, atrophy, I think, when when parents are not able to exercise a choice. So, for example, uh, Dr. Patrick Wolf has a book out uh, from several years now called The, the School Choice Journey, which was based on uh, after he had conducted uh, some research on the effects of, uh, of the Washington, D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program, uh, he and some others did a series of, of, of uh, interviews of these families that were actually participating in the program. And what he found was, uh, you know, you hear this, this idea that, oh, the, the, the parents, especially low-income parents, they're just, they're not engaged. Well, one of the reasons that they're not engaged in their district schools is because they have no power there. That's right. Okay, if they show up and they complain, okay, they file it in the circular filing cabinet, right? The trash. Uh, nothing changes. And so they are not as engaged. Mm-hmm. But that changes, he notes, once they're able to exercise choice, right. once they're able to choose the school, they're invested mm-hmm. in that school. And that school also knows that if they're not meeting their needs, well, that family can take their money, take their voucher or scholarship, or whatever it is they have, and they can go somewhere else with it. So the school is more responsive, mm-hmm. and that elicits um, more engagement on the part of the parent because when their voice actually matters, they're willing to engage. Yep. So I think this reminds me of, of a couple things. One, our research on how parents choose in Indiana and I think now in Florida, right? Once parents are choosing, they're getting more involved in their kids' That's school. Right. They're getting more involved in their kids' education. They're voting more. They're getting different jobs. They're really becoming better citizens, ordinary people, to use the terminology from Humphrey. And then that reminds me of Milton's quote, right? He says, uh, there's nothing, well, I think I'm going to mash it up, I apologize, but um, nothing has been found to improve the lot of the ordinary person more than the ability to have like free enterprise and choice. And so I think one of the conversations that we should touch on here is the class conversation. You know, Bern, uh, Humphrey is, is certainly is someone who had the ability to choose, someone who had the power to choose, but ordinary people. And uh, in, 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 in British terms, that means poor people, right, don't have that capacity. And I think you see the, the classism and the, class, the classist mentality there, which we see all the time here. Now, for us, it's in America, it certainly is rich and poor, but it's also people who live in what they consider suburban districts and people who live in urban districts, right? There's, there's all sorts of things that divide us by, by class and housing structure. And, and, and there's a lot of people who are saying, oh, they can't really choose. They're not qualified enough to choose. Only the professionals can choose. Um, and, and I just think that's a gratuitous insult that we can never forget. Right. And with respect, Prime Minister, I think that the DES will react with some caution to your rather novel proposal. You mean they'll block it? I mean they will give it the most serious and urgent consideration and insist on a thorough and rigorous examination of all the proposals allied to a detailed feasibility study and budget analysis before producing a consultative document for consideration by all interested bodies and seeking comments and recommendations to be included in a brief for a series of working parties who will produce individual studies which will provide the background for a more wide-ranging document considering whether or not the proposal should be taken forward to the next stage. You mean they'll block it? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a, I just get a kick out of that guy. Yeah. Um, so you, that's probably, Jason, one of your favorite clips, right? Because it goes to all of the things which I know get you your juices going, which is 
you know, government at its absolute worst. Well, of course we care. We're going to have a document. We're going to have people look at it. We're going to have multiple, multiple conversations about it. And we'll basically get nothing done because that's what we do. Right. It, it shows the tremendous power that bureaucracies have to stymie reform, right? To slow things down, to trip things up. And in the hopes that, you know, all we need to do is block it for a few years until this prime minister or whatever politician they're dealing with is gone. And then some new person is going to come in with their cockamamie ideas. And then we'll find some way of blocking those two. And the government is just going to continue chugging along the way it goes. And, and I mean, you've seen examples of this in a variety of different states. I'm sure you've got some war well, stories. Well, so and in fact, I got a story from Britain. So when I was uh, living there, I was on a, a school board at Hillmead Infants and Junior School. and they had started this process. You could co- actually contract out services to, to for-profit entities if you had buildings that you wanted fixed or carpet or whatever. You could actually have a competitive bidding process. Go figure. So was, this was novel back in the 90s, right? Um, so what ended up happening, of course, is the local education authority, the LEA at that point, would always undercut any private uh, e- efforts, right? So we had to fix one of our buildings. And so we'd put it out to bidding, and of course the government bureaucrats came back cheaper because, you know, they could undercut every bid, which they did. And of course they did shoddy work. <laughs> so they come there and do shoddy work, and I'm very unhappy because I'm, I'm uh, I think it was as head of the uh, finance committee. And so I'm like really unhappy, and I look at our finances and I see they'd already taken the money out for the project. And so I call over and said, put my money back because I don't agree with what you've done here, and this is terrible workmanship. And I'm sorry, sir. We can't. We've already taken the money out, and and that's that sort of bureaucracy. This this the way that it actually has power that people don't understand the nature of that power, right? The power that I had to cont- competitively bid did not really give me power to own the process. It gave me power to choose someone that they really wanted me to choose, which I had no power of paying for, and that's what happens. And it was really awful because we had to guess what we had to pay twice to get it fixed, and they even have the power to when you know. We do a lot of hard work uh, getting grassroots coalitions mobilized, uh, getting enough legislative support to pass a bill, getting it signed by the governor, right? That takes an, a tremendous amount of work. But then after that law has been passed, it doesn't end there because there are a whole bunch of things we've seen, for example, uh, in Mississippi, right? They pass uh, a, a program, uh, a, a what is it, education savings account program. Well, the bureaucracy decides, okay, well, we're going to have this very narrow window when you can apply. And that's one way they can, they can limit the number of people that participate in the program. Uh, in Arizona, the, the state education department did a whole bunch of things that made it very difficult for families to exercise uh, their ability to, to get an ESA. So for example, uh, they decided that workbooks and flashcards were not going to be eligible expenditures uh, unless they were required by a whole curriculum. So you had to buy a whole curriculum. You couldn't just buy a single math workbook because that, that they said, didn't count. Now, the, the law seemed to allow it, but the law is one thing. The rules that the bureaucracy comes up with is another thing. Uh, so here's another thing. The, the, the law said you, know, you can't, if you are an ESA parent, you can't pay yourself for your services to your, your own child. So... Uh, that makes perfect sense, right? That's that's a that's a measure to yeah. to avoid fraud. But how the department interpreted it was different. So let's say you have a woman who's a speech therapist. She helps hundreds of kids with speech therapy. Mm-hmm. Well, 
the department, again, this isn't in the law, but the department decided if her own child was an ESA child, not only can she not serve her own child, but she can't serve any other child uh, with her speech therapy services because her own child has an ESA, right? That's, that's, it's an absurd uh, interpretation of the law, sure. but you've got to then go to a court and spend all this money to try and, and, and get access to, to your ability to participate in the program. Look, These and, my, sorts of and, and the, the, my favorite Arizona story that, so you're talking about after the bill's passed. Yeah. My favorite Arizona story is just to show how bad the bureaucracy is and how, how, how we think the government is sort of there to help us. But it's, it's so far back in the 870s and 60s and 50s and 40s that it doesn't even have the machinery to help. So when That's they right. passed the ESA bill and you had, a, you had a, a time limit to get in your application, mm-hmm. guess how the government in Arizona yep. took applications? Fax machines. A fax machine. Yep. And not only did they take it by fax machine, guess what happened over the weekend when everyone had to get their thing in? They ran out of paper. Ink. Ink and paper, yeah. right? Ink they, and paper, right? So. But they couldn't just go down the street to Staples to buy it. No, that's right. No, you have to fill out a requisition form, right. right? And it 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 took a long time. So th- by the time they actually got the ink for the printers, the application period had closed. closed. So you've got all these families now. What are they? They have to fax in their application. It includes their IEP. So that's these correct. are many of them are low income. Yeah, the IEPs, IEPs are 25, 30 pages long. Well, actually, some the of them I assume can 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 exceed hundred pages. Okay, <laughs> and so they're faxing all these things. And, and it's getting back an error message. And so they try to call. So what do you think happens? Well, there's too many people calling the department. So the department shuts off the phones, right? So <laughs> this, this is during the last week of the application This, period. of course, being an angle father, I'm just reminds me of the theme song from Benny Hill, right? <laughs> it's just chaos and chaos around all the time. And it's not even about the rules. It's just about the mechanics of getting an application yeah. in the door. Now, some surprisingly... Amazon doesn't have this problem. Overstock does not have this problem. They seemingly take literally millions. Overstock.com, just go on there, and they can seemingly take care right. of you all day long. So I can tell you even, even in uh, Florida. So Florida's ESA is managed by a nonprofit, Step Up for Students, that, that is also the scholarship organization that, that runs their tax credit scholarship program. Uh, a few key differences between the Arizona program and the Florida program. Even though the, the Arizona program had a, a, a larger eligibility pool, there were more students participating in the Florida program. Uh, why is that? Well, uh, in Arizona, the, the government did the bare minimum to let parents know that the, this program was available. I mean, and this is something we see in a bunch of states. So the lawmakers will say, you need to inform parents. And what they'll do is in some you know, 30-page documents on page 28 in small print, it will say, by the way, you have access to this program, right? So they never find out about it. They would only do info sessions uh, during bankers' hours. Uh, they would not do it nights and weekends. So you've got a lot of low-income families. Yep, that you've yep. got two working parents, or maybe it's a single mom. And they, and they can't go unless it's nights or weekends. Well, in Florida, it's run by a nonprofit. Yep. They were actually interested in getting the word out and helping these people. So they did it on nights and weekends. You mean and they, they didn't did it, do it from 930 to 3.30 <laughs> every day with a and, half hour for lunch? And they would have somebody there in Spanish. They yeah. would have materials in Spanish. That's right. That's right. Arizona Department of Education did not, at least at first, uh, until there were lots of complaints and outside pressure. And then they started uh, providing things in Spanish. Yep. And this goes back to the, the sort of yes minister, yes prime minister stuff. So, like, so I remember those letters they used to send out under No Child Left Behind. You probably saw some of these, right? So No Child Left Behind. Uh, required if you were not at school making adequate yearly progress to inform all the families that they could use supplemental services, right? right. Meaning they could get tutoring or go somewhere else to get some help, right? right? So the school districts would 
be required to inform their parents that they were not making adequate yearly process. And the letters would start off like something like this. Uh, Dear parent, uh, School District X is one of the best in the state. We are always thinking about you, your choices, your opportunities, what we can do for you. Um, Blah, 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 blah. P.S. By the way, we're not making adequate yearly progress. You can choose to go to a supplemental services. And this is the way the machinery works, right? It, it, It works to thwart and stymie. Whereas someone like Step Up and a lot of other groups, they actually put the customer in the front, or the parent in the front. Right. So, uh, so now in this scene, you have Sir Humphrey, again, the, the consummate civil servant, uh, going for advice to a more senior uh, uh, and, and more experienced civil servant uh, for some tactics for how to block his own minister's reforms. So let's set this, this clip up a little bit more. So. So the prime minister has gotten a report from his political person saying the schools are failing. He's gone to visit the school, uh, which is an amazing school for, fa- uh, for families and parents are doing this incredible stuff, met with his wife and said, why can't we do something different? Finally had an epiphany, he said, sure, we can offer choices, and has had the meeting with his, his civil service, uh, civil servant uh, Humphrey, who's like, well, no, no, we can't do that because the bureaucrats are, 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 are needing to have their pound of flesh. And now, so we've gotten to this point, and the prime minister's still serious about it. And so how the next bit is what happens after all of that. So you've gone from, I realize that choice is a good idea. We're going to try to make it happen. I've heard all my internal arguments in the legislature with my cabinet. Now let's see what happens to it. But it's hard to get the prime minister to see that it's a bad idea. Of course. It's actually a very good idea. It just mustn't happen. (laughs) I wonder whether we oughtn't to play along with it in the interests of the nation's children. Never mind the nation's children. What about our colleagues at the Department of Education? (laughs) Yes, of course. Sorry. Humphrey, let's be clear about this. The only people who will like this idea are the parents and the children. Everyone who counts will be against it. (laughs) Teachers' unions. The local authorities. Educational press. And, of course, the DES. So, what's the strategy? Well, the unions can be counted on to disrupt the schools. And to go on television saying it's the government who are causing the disruption. Good, yes. And the local councils will threaten to turn the constituency parties against the government. Fine. The Department of Education will delay every stage of the process and leak anything that embarrasses the government. So we saw something very similar to this just happen in Arizona and actually uh, a a number of other states, right? So you've got this what's called Red for Ed movement. Teachers are striking and they're asking for higher wages. And in some of those cases, by the way, I live in Arizona. Teachers, uh, relative to the national average, even after adjusting for cost of living, are, I think, underpaid. And so, you know, we we do want to to have a proper investment in the teachers. The, The problem is that these Uh, groups that were mobilizing them, they were using school choice as a boogeyman. They were saying, oh, the reason that you guys don't have access to the the funding, it's it's not because of misspending. It's not because uh, uh, that we're not doing a good enough job of making sure that the money actually flows to you. It's that the, the money is being siphoned out by these school choice programs. And they were pointing particular at the ESA, Correct. even though fewer than 1% of total K-12 spending yep. goes to the ESA. Yep. Uh, but that didn't, that didn't matter. Because facts was the don't matter, right? Facts well, don't you matter, Well, right? you needed an enemy. And so they, yeah. they use that as a very convenient enemy. And they get to blame the government. So like facts don't matter. So like in my home state of Indiana, um, spending has gone up the last seven years. Teacher salaries have gone down. 
Uh, student enrollments remained a little bit, uh, gone up a little bit, and the hiring of non-teachers has gone up dramatically. Now, why is that? Is that a state function? So everyone gets mad about that and blames the state. Well, actually, it's the local districts who can be counted on to blame the state, right? Um, everyone in the entire movement for school reform should watch this clip because this clip is the quintessential way of how to stop any real reform from happening. And, and it literally gives you a playbook, right? Blame someone else. Facts don't matter, right? Um, cause disruption. I mean, right. these are classic standard cause things. Cause disruption and then blame your political opponents for the disruption. That's right. That's right. And the press usually likes to go along because you've, you have created a narrative where you're the underdog and you're fighting against this oppressive system. Yep. And the press usually loves that. And and you have an enemy. And the enemy is, well, those people over there, they're trying to and I love it. I love the comment. siphon money out of siphon the Siphon money. And I love the comment. goes, well, it's actually quite a good idea, he said, right? right? And it is. It's actually quite a good idea. But, of course, we can't let it happen, right? And this is a perfect example. You ask people in America, based on all the surveys we do, and you ask teachers, you ask principals, they all understand the importance of having choice for themselves, right? And they'll say that to you, right? So the vast majority of Americans understand that it's a good idea, but just the people who actually benefit from the system don't. What's our argument? Well, obviously, that this uh, new proposal will destroy our educational system. Well, everybody knows it's destroyed already. Well, we will say, sorry, the press will say, that it's government interference in the Department of Education that destroyed it, and that this new plan will make things even worse. Will that do the trick? It always has in the past. Okay, so this clip is from a show that aired in Britain in 1988, but this is still the strongest argument against school reform. It's a scaremongering tactic that is still used today. Uh, even the national teachers unions uh, admit that this, or, or, or uh, advise uh, their advocates that this is the strongest argument that they should be using. Well, most kids are going to uh, public schools. These other programs are siphoning money out of the public schools. It's gonna destroy the system. And you know things are bad now, but this is going to make it way worse. And so, uh, really, don't go that way. Just give us more money, and we'll fix it. You know, it's it's sometimes depressing that the same argument from the '80s is still the same argument. Um, and it is. It is their most powerful argument, right? Um, you're taking, you're destroying education, and 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 I I think back to the earlier clips where it's just the answer's got to be why, why. Just ask this conversation about why, 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 because the, the facts don't hold up. And you know that they're going to talk about uh, siphoning money. You know they're going to talk about destroying education as we right. know it. You, you know we're going to hear about how it's going to not have the system. It's not. There's this whole sense of fear and the fear of the unknown. And the fear of the unknown is a powerful, powerful tonic, right? And so we need to be recognizing that and as we look at this in states. And, and everyone that we're talking to needs to continue to put – the idea of parents first, right, and themselves first as they think this process through. And I think one major difference between uh, 1988 and today is that today we actually have empirical data to test this question. So the, the concern, actually, it makes sense as a concern, right? All right, so you've got this existing system, and now we're going to introduce choice. Well, what might happen? Well, the parents who are most invested in education, who are going to have the students that are the best and brightest, they're going to leave the system, the money's going to follow them out of the system, and that might be great for those kids, but what happens to all the kids who are left behind, quote unquote, in the system? Mm -hmm. You're going to have the hardest to teach kids 
and they're going to have less money to teach them. And it's just, it's a recipe for disaster, right? I understand that as a concern, but now we've got a few decades of experience with school choice programs. We're at the point where there's 29 states plus Washington, D.C. that have some form of school choice. Many of them are relatively small, but you've got you know, a number of states, Indiana, Arizona, Florida, Pennsylvania, that have a, you know, a sizable number of students that are participating in these programs. Well, what has actually happened? Mm-hmm. Okay, we've got more than two dozen studies uh, by reputable universities looking at what happens to the district school system after the introduction of a school sure. choice program. All but, I think, one at this point, uh, actually it's two, one, all found a small positive impact, one found no statistically significant difference, one found a, a slight negative impact, uh, but it's an outlier. The vast majority find that after the introduction of a school choice program, the district school system improves. Mm. It's not a panacea, it doesn't solve all of the problems, but they actually get better in terms of test scores and things like that. Why? Well. Once you introduce choice to the system, once parents can say, okay, if you're not meeting our needs, I'm going to go somewhere else, well, that district school now has to be more responsive to the needs of parents and students than they ever had to before. So what we actually find is once you do introduce choice and competition into the system, it, it creates a system-wide improvement. It's the rising tide that lifts all boats. Well, that's right. And, and so the other thing that's hopeful and positive, right? So we yeah. not only have data, we actually have experience. And by that, I mean, you know, in America, if you believe the data coming from Pat Wolf, which he does, he did a study for us showing this, uh, 40% of the people in America are already choosing schools outside of their zip code assigned school, right? So we're, this idea of choice is here, and it's much more broad than merely, merely the private school choice movement. It's great that we have over a half a million kids using public funds to access non-public schools. That's fantastic. We have, we have over, what, 3 million kids are uh, using using money to go to charter schools. We have three million kids in homeschoolers. We have, excuse me, even six million kids in charter schools. I'm not sure. I can't remember. But the fact is that we have, in, in our state of Indiana, right, so where I live, we've gone from a situation where public to public transfers, charters, homeschool, and, and our private scholarship program now is, uh, is 27%. No, sorry. We've taken it from 91 to 83% of people going to just traditional schools. So the fact is, is parents are choosing, right? So, and it's happening. Dr. Freeman used to say, you know it, you're ready for a massive disruption in a, in a marketplace when there's a vibrant uh, black market already happening. And you look at the tech sector. You look at what's happening in, in, in Brooklyn. Like to Brooklyn right now, you go to these message boards in the areas of Brooklyn and say they have these micro schools all over the place, right? And so it's happening, right? And so, you know, what ends up happening, is, to, to quote, I think, a British poet, you know, the center cannot hold forever. And I think we're to the point where maybe 30, 40 years on from that argument, we're getting to the point where the center of that argument can't hold because we have data and we have experience. That's right. And, and who's benefiting the most? It's the families that had least access to choice before. So to address that creaming argument, right, look at Florida. Florida has the largest private school choice program in the country. There are more than 100,000 students participating in the program. The average family income is only $25,000. So these are among the most disadvantaged families. Uh, 70% of them are Hispanic or black. And the uh, Florida State University conducts a, a, an annual study. It's a longitudinal study where they look at the students who are participating in the program. And what they find is that the year they enter the program, they have lower test scores before entering 
than their demographically similar peers. In other words, it's not the best and the brightest that are fleeing the system. It's the kids that are not doing well in the existing system. And, and so it's the parents that are saying, hey, this system's not working for my kid. I need something else. And they go put their child in a different school that's the right fit. Mm -hmm. And then what do we find? Well, after a few years of participating in the program, these students from, again, the most disadvantaged population in the country are performing at the national average, far outperforming their demographically similar peers. And so it's important that they're, they're actually finding the right fit. Mm -hmm. And that also could explain part of the change in the, in the district school performance, right? You're taking some of the lowest performing students, moving them out into schools where they can perform better. And that means that just without changing anything, you've already improved the average level That's of right. performance in the That's district right. schools. That's right. Look, th this is what, what's happening in Florida, what's happening in Arizona, what's happening in places like Indiana and, and to a lesser extent in Ohio and other places is truly transforming, I think, our, our education system as we know it. And I, I sort of want to take a step here and challenge. So we know the bureaucracy is problematic, right? We know it has a as – you, as you've watched these clips, you've seen here are the arguments against internally. Here's the way to block it. Here's the messaging, right? So it's the whole sort of uh, great playbook for, for, for anti-choice arguments. One of the things that I think has happened in our movement, uh, unlike what's happened here, is Fellow reformers start questioning each other. So, so you mentioned to me $25,000 in Florida is the average uh, salary. I've heard people who are supporters of charter schools say, well, those aren't really the poor people. Those are good poor people. I mean, we have a real problem when, in this movement, and, and I think we should take this on right at some point, when, when we have people in one sector saying the other sector is not good enough. I mean, that is actually regulatory capture at its worst. Right. When you actually start having people who want to reform the system saying, well, I like my kind of reform more than your kind of reform, like somehow they're smarter and better and wiser than everyone else. And so I think we have to one of, one of the disheartening things that's happened since the 1980s, right, has been we have a growing movement and that growing movement does what all movements do. They started they ossified regulatory capture. And so one of our jobs is to always continue to renew this argument, renew the the focus on what our unifying principle is. And that unifying principle has to be every parent should be free to choose every school with the money set aside for them because you would expect nothing less for your children. Absolutely. Now, the sad thing is, at least in this episode of this fictional British world, uh, the bureaucrats do succeed in blocking any reform and they get the prime minister to back down. And so the, there, there is no reform. But what sort of lessons can we take from, from this episode, and, and I've got a few, um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. Well, but. so having lived through this, sorry to interrupt, yeah, having lived through this, so the, the extent what happened after this, right? Yeah. So Thatcher comes in and does a whole bunch of voucher program and a whole bunch of uh, choice stuff. Blair comes in and does grant-maintained schools, which are ostensibly like charter schools. There has been a ton of effort in, the, in, in Britain to, to change and allow parents more freedom and more access to freedom. Uh, and in fact, as you know, um, public money already already finds its way. Uh, taxpayer funds in Britain already find its way to all sorts of schools. And so there, after that sort of showing in 1988, there has been and will be a, a continuing a, a huge uh, effort to reform the system in Britain. So some fictional defeats, but some, some, some real-life successes, yeah. which is great. So some of the lessons I take from this. First, uh, when you, whenever you're trying to reform something, you're going to go up against status quo bias, Right. People have a hard time, especially most people in this country went to a public school. They're used to this system. 
the idea that you're going to have a, a very different system is foreign and it takes a lot of educating. It takes showing people, well, like, look, this is actually working in some places. Look what's going on in Indiana and Arizona and Florida. These things, people are actually exercising choice. They're using these programs. The system's not collapsing. Actually, it's improving, right? So that's, that's one thing. Uh, second, there is going to, you're just passing the bill. First of all, it's very hard to get the bill passed and you're going to run up against all those sorts of arguments that they talked about and those uh, coalitions and reformers have to be prepared for that. They have to have the data, they have to have the facts, uh, and they have to have the arguments. But even after you get your bill passed, the work is not done. Now you have to deal with whichever bureaucracy is in charge. So first of all, you should do a good job um, as a uh, designing the bill, make sure that the department that's running the program is the appropriate department. In many cases, it's not actually the Department of Education. You'll often have more success with a program if you put it in the Department of the Treasury. Some department that does not have, let's say, an ideological axe to grind against the program, uh, because the Department of Ed usually sees their mission as uh, they've, they've confused public education with a public school system. Mm -hmm. And so they see any alternatives to that as a threat. And so putting it in like the, the Treasury or Department of Revenue, you generally have very highly competent people. These are like the green visor types. They just want to make sure that the money is moving from, you know, to where it's supposed to be and is being allocated for the appropriate uses. But otherwise, they don't have the ideological axe to grind. So reform can't stop at the legislature. It has to continue with the implementation. So I'll uh, relate a story from uh, Governor Daniels. So uh, Governor Mitch Daniels, when, we, when the bill was passed in Indiana in 2011, um, the nation's largest single voucher bill at that point, right? Uh, amazing. And I'll never forget Governor Daniels. We're, 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 we're looking after the victory. We're, we're sitting and we're talking. And he goes, all right, Robert, have a good night tonight because tomorrow you got to implement it well. And so I think that's really important to remember that, that just passing laws and anything, you got to implement it very well. The other two lessons I would take, well, the main lesson I would take from these clips, and I think we should all take, right, is I think it's the importance of, of, of two questions, why and why not, right? We should always be asking why and why not. Uh, someone will say, why, why, why can't we do this? And why not, right? Those, those Because when you actually continue to ask those questions, you drive people to the point, as you drove the prime minister to the point of, well, it just won't work. You, you drive away the actual real arguments, or you get them to the naked politics that's behind it. And I think that that becomes clear to parents that that's not the way they want to go. That's an excellent point, Robert, and I think it's a good place to leave things. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Ed Choice Chats. If you have some new pop culture ideas, email us at media at edchoice.org. Uh, and also you can subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. And you can follow us on social media at EdChoice or sign up for our email at our website, edchoice.org. Thank you. We'll see you next time. See you next time.